chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 15. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. God's Word declares, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded... Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, sent, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness. And searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received receiving a command for, for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Find in both of them. And so we're going to take some time looking at Thessalonica and Berea as the two places that Paul and Silas visit. They have a pretty good-sized entourage with them. Timothy, of course, is with them. Luke is with them at some point in the midst of some of this. Um, and we find that uh, uh, we have a pretty good representation from these churches that are going to travel with Paul from here forward, as we're going to see in a couple of chapters. And so these become two very important um, cities for us to study. Of course, we have two books of our New Testament that are written to the church in Thessalonica, and those appropriately are called First and Second Thessalonians. And we all understand, I, I think that have read those books, know what the great concern in Thessalonica was, is, um, have we missed the Lord's coming? Uh, we have some Christians dying here, and are they not going to participate in the resurrection? And so we're going to find that there's going to be a costliness to the faith of the Thessalonians, that uh, they need to be encouraged in and strengthened to endure, um, and also a clearer understanding of that doctrine of Christ's coming. Uh, than what they received. And we're going to see very quickly why maybe his preaching and teaching ministry there was limited that necessitated those two books. 
And uh, then we have the Bereans. And there is no book of the Bible called the Bereans, or to the Bereans. Um, and rather than seeing that as a negative thing, I'm going to contend this morning that that is actually a very good thing. When we consider that most of the books of the Bible, particularly in the epistles, the, the, they are written because there are problems in the churches, difficulties or oppositions or error that has cropped up in them. And uh, I think it is significant that there is no book to the Bereans. And uh, we find uh, that these kinds of churches, these kinds of bodies, uh, are able to recognize and understand the truth because of their approach to God's Word, as we're going to see. Before we get into this too far, let's go, Lord, in prayer, though. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your Word before us, your Spirit within us, your people around us. And Lord, we do pray that you might have the liberty to move not only in what is said, but how it is received in our very hearts, our minds that they might be receptive to his work. And Lord, we know that which would hinder your Spirit's work is our sin, especially our unbelief. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, cleanse us of that. As you promised in your word, as we confess it to you, uh, that we might uh, be ready to receive your truth, um, not as just something to add to our memory, but as that which needs to impact our lives and be lived out in our flesh in these days. Uh, until your coming. And Lord, we thank you for the authoritative word you've given to us. And we pray that we might be careful to uh, keep not only our declarations of belief, but our um, functional beliefs in accordance with this authority, and including this time of teaching. We pray your Spirit's help in guarding this time, not only from error, but also from distraction. We might focus our attention clearly upon your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to a very uh, important passage, I think, as we are introduced to these uh, two communities. Uh, of course, Thessalonica, we have talked about, is going to bring us into First and Second Thessalonians. But we're also going to see a a variety of responses. Remember, we, we looked at that last week as we considered the, re, the, the necessary question. What are you going to do with the fact that we um, have someone in recorded history who has raised from the dead? Uh, you have to make a decision about that. You have to either decide, uh, like uh, the Epicureans on Mars Hill, um, either you're going to scoff at it, laugh at it, ignore it, uh, you're going to just kind of mull it over, or you're going to have to receive it. Um, there's really no other way to deal with this, um, that, that this is radically different and distinct than any other religious claim. Um, and so uh, we've seen Paul focus on that resurrection passage and, and aspect, not only in the, in the historical account of Christ, but also in the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament as, as Paul reasons with the Jews as we see here in Thessalonica, he does as well. He reasons with them and appeals to their minds to consider that this is what the Bible says he will be like. Now we have an individual who is, who has done, and is who the prophets point to. Now what are you going to do with him? 
In Thessalonica, we find Paul um, going through his normal routine. He comes into a community. He couldn't do it in Philippi. Um, we saw that several weeks ago, that there was no synagogue to go into, that Philippi was, even though it was a principal city and fairly large, it did not have enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. Um, the, and whether there was some anti-Semitism there uh, within the community kind of was reflected by how they reacted to him there in Philippi and the beating that he took. He and Silas took there in the imprisonment. But we come to Thessalonica and we find right away that he's going to um, find a synagogue of the Jews there. And again, we are told in verse 2, this is his custom. Uh, Paul's his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. And of course, the scriptures would not have included what we've just read. You understand that, right? When he says he reasoned from the scriptures, it doesn't include the New Testament. They weren't written at the time. Uh, and so we're talking about the Old Testament. We are talking about Genesis through Malachi, that Paul goes into the synagogue. Remember, he's a rabbi. Uh, he was a Pharisee and uh, had all the apparel to go with it, all the, the reputation to follow that, taught by uh, a, a well-known rabbi, Gamaliel. And so he comes in and they are going to concede the pulpit to him. They're going to concede the teaching part to, to him and allow him to come in and instruct them. And he takes their scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, and he begins to engage them. And as I've shared in the past, I think the book of Hebrews is a powerful uh, representation of how he would do that. That he would just go right through from, from really even before the law, from creation all the way through, and demonstrate that there was nothing in the law that could really ultimately save anyone, but they all point to another thing. And the repetitious nature of sacrifices and, and uh, priests and high priests simply call us to recognize there's got to be something better out there. And so the book of Hebrews, if you want to know how did Paul reason with the Jews, and by the way, they're still Jews today, and they are still reasonable. <laughs> you can talk to them. Get to know your Old Testament, and especially the book of Hebrews. It's a great uh, tool to help you uh, reach uh, these people uh, who need the Lord, their Messiah, their Christ, their better sacrifice, better high priest, better covenant. Um, they need to know that, that there's something better, uh, particularly now when they're not allowed to sacrifice, and, and uh, they, they don't have a recognized high priest today. Um, and so they need him. And so we have Paul entering, engaging it. And the idea that somehow the Christianity and these items of faith are irrational has really come into our society in, in the last generation particularly that somehow that you're just stupid if you believe in this kind of stuff. And uh, this is for the unthinking and the, the, the mentally lame that they need this as, as a crutch sort of to uh, get them through. Um, and the fact is, is that we can engage them. And, we, and, and historically, the Christian church has engaged the world, not just on a basis of, of fear or of, um, of emotionalism, but we reason through the scriptures. We engage men's minds with the gospel. There is a rationality to what God has done and why it is necessary. There is evidence. Remember, uh, Hebrews himself says, what is faith? Faith is the evidence of things unseen. 
the substance, the touchableness. It is something that we can point to and declare and, and talk about and, and, and engage men with. And so Paul arrives and he reasons with them from their scriptures, first of all. And I love verse 3. He explains and demonstrates that the Christ, whoever he is, don't even start with the name Jesus. Just start with the Christ, the Messiah. Let's talk about the Messiah. What, is, what does the Scripture say has to happen to the, the Messiah? What does your Old Testament Scriptures, Jews, have to say about it? And what Paul draws out with them for three weeks, three Saturdays, is that they had to suffer, he had to rise again from the dead, and then finally, at the end, having explained and demonstrated that about the Christ, whoever the Messiah, the Deliverer is, now I want you to understand that this has all been a fulfilled in this person, Jesus Christ. And so the first step he has to take with these Jewish believers is to get them to recognize, okay, we all want the Messiah. And even today, you go to Israel, they want the Messiah. Um, they're willing to follow almost anyone if it brings peace in the land and particularly gives them access to the Temple Mount. Um, they're looking for the Messiah. And this has been true for all these thousands of years. They have been looking for the Messiah. And so, uh, but they have always been looking for a national deliverer. And they have ignored mammoth amounts of their own scriptures that Paul emphasizes and takes them to to demonstrate that the Messiah isn't just this a powerful political figure, but that also he is the lamb. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who must bear the iniquity of his people, the sin, the error, the, the, the evil of his, of his people. And so uh, he must suffer, he must be cruelly mistreated, but then he has to conquer sin and death. And once he begins to get them to grasp outside of their national interests, who the Christ really is and what his purposes were, once he has established that, then he can introduce the fulfillment of that person in the one Jesus Christ. And I fear we go too strongly to begin with Christ instead of understanding the necessity to begin with, well, what does it take to deliver men from sin? What does it take to get rid of sin? We don't like to talk about sin because there is no such thing as sin anymore. Um, it's just your preferences, right? So nothing's right and wrong. We have abolished absolute truth and therefore we have abolished right and wrong. And so whatever is right for you is right for you and whatever is wrong for me is wrong for me. Um, and we're okay with that until someone starts bleeding. And that's sad because there is truth. Absolute truth. That we are measured by. And so we... We recognize it in our hearts. We just don't always want to acknowledge it in our minds. And so we find the necessity to, what does it take to get rid of sin? Well, can doing good things outweigh sin? No, it doesn't make it go away. Um, I can save a thousand people out of a burning building, but if the earlier the previous day or the pre earlier that week, um, I, I murdered seven people, it doesn't undo me murdering seven people. I'm still a murderer. It doesn't work that way. You can't get rid of sin by doing good. And we recognize that in our judicial system. So a medical doctor who goes in and uh, is accused of murdering his wife still goes to prison for murdering his wife or gets electric... They don't do the electric chair much anymore, do they? 
or the noose. Although they're talking about it now because they don't like the chemicals anymore. Um, they still have to pay the penalty for no matter how many people they saved in their medical practice, you murder your wife, you're going to jail. One murder. All those lives saved don't count. They aren't measurable because no good can get rid of sin. And we know that in our heart, we know that in our mind, but we don't want to conceive of that because of its ramifications. What does it mean? It means that I'm stuck in sin. I'm stuck holding the bag of responsibility for every evil act and thought and word that I have perpetrated. I'm left holding the bag. I'm under judgment. I have a penalty I have to pay. And this, Paul wants to communicate to them. And then finally, now there's a deliverer. You see, all Israel wanted was the promises of their scriptures. And not recognizing the conditions of those promises were righteousness that they didn't meet. And I find a lot of people who want the promises of God. They want heaven. Right? I've not encountered very many people that I go up to and say, would you like to spend eternity in heaven? No. (laughs) I just haven't encountered those people. I really haven't. Some will say there is no heaven, but that's different than saying they don't want to be there if there is one. The fact is, people want the promises of God. That has never been the difficulty in the message of the, of the Bible. People have always wanted that good stuff. The difficulty has always been what's required to receive it. We talked about Naaman last week as our example, really, of the gal that sent him to the prophet. That Here's a Syrian leper um, who had been actively engaged in war with the Israelites, taken away an Israelite girl as a captive uh, for his wife. Not someone we would want to be kind to, but she was. And uh, we find him offended. The offer was still there, right? He wanted to be healed. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. I would like to be healed. That would be spectacular. I would love that. I want all the good things God has offered me. But then the prophet says, okay, all you got to do is go wash in the Jordan seven times. Go dunk yourself down in there, come up out of there seven times and you'll be healed. And he's offended. He's offended at that. You know why? It's just too simple and it's too humiliating. And people are still offended at the simplicity and the necessary humility that it takes to receive the promises of God today. They're still offended at it because it's still brunt to our pride. And we're going to see that come out here in the events coming forward very quickly in Thessalonica and later in Berea. We're going to see this offense to our self-esteem. We're pretty sure that we're not that bad and that we can do some great things of our own strength that would impress God enough for him to uh, not grant us the good things, but pay us the good things we earned. And this is the pride of men 
that makes them rebel against the truth of God. And it ends up leaving them in their sin. Now remember, the opposition that's going to come forward here are going to be religious people. Um, They are Jewish people who are well trained in the scriptures. Um, but it's going to be that pride that's going to prevent them from receiving Christ as their Messiah. But not all. In verse 4, we find that some were persuaded. Some of the Jews in the synagogue were persuaded. That word persuasion is that turning of the mind. That they, that they saw it, they recognized this truth, they followed Paul's arguments over those three weeks of teaching and they recognized that it had authority of Scripture behind it, that it was rational, that it was reasonable, that, that it was demonstrable, that is, he could show it. He could show the necessity of the Christ suffering and dying and shedding his blood to cover our sin because there's no way the blood of animals can do that. And so, the, and, and he could demonstrate that and they saw all of that and they recognized that if all that is true and, and they could see the argumentation line up and, and uh, with Scripture, with their, with their own understanding of justice and righteousness, then it demanded something of them and they were willing to submit to that. And that is a powerful spirit when you encounter that. That is a wonderful thing. And they believed not only did some of the Jews persuade, it says also a great multitude of the devout Greeks. And remember, these are the, the next group outside of Jerusalem, with, or, really in, or outside of the Jews that were inside of, of Judaism. Um, they weren't born Jews. Some of them were proselytes. Some of them were just devout people who stood outside the synagogue and listened outside the window. And it says a great multitude of them believed. So we have some of the Jews inside, a multitude of those who are on that next fringe who had access to an interest in the things of the Jewish scriptures, um, and now they heard it in this manner, and they, they recognized that this was a powerful opportunity for them to receive the forgiveness of God and to become his people outright without keeping all the law. For that could not save us, but only pointed to our sin. So some of the Jews were persuaded. A lot of the God-fearing Greeks also believed. Including some pretty prominent people. As we're going to see here as they go into a house of one named Jason. But in verse 5, we find another response. And I would contend with you that this is the more frequent response that we're going to receive, particularly in our age and in this place. And one of the reasons this response works so well is because we have so wholeheartedly abandoned thoughtfulness. The reasoning, explaining, and demonstrating aren't sufficient for us, or nor are we interested in the work and process of doing that, nor are we humble enough to engage ourselves honestly in it. Verse 5 says, The Jews were not persuaded. So they had heard all the same arguments. They had engaged him for those three weeks. And it says that they were envious, 
They didn't like the appeal, particularly to the, Jew, to the Greeks outside. It took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Why are there always evil men out there ready to be grabbed up, influenced? Some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And by the way, this is going to be repeated in verse 13. In Berea, it says, When the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was preached by Paul Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And this is normative. We've already seen this way back in the Gospels when people who had just heralded Christ's entry into Jerusalem as Hosanna to the king uh, and had laid out palm branches before him to come in and riding on a donkey that we find uh, their designation of him as their king and then within a week they are shouting out, crucify him. How is that possible? Well, one thing we need to learn is the crowds are fickle. And the reason they're fickle is because they're not thoughtful. And today we can stir up crowds so easily um, for several reasons, but among them is because every one of us must recognize that we represent a powder keg of rebellion just waiting for the trigger. That is, in our hearts, God declares that there's a, a place of rebellion, that, that our hearts are filled with that. That we, we hold the, we are simply often a container for the gunpowder, for the uh, hydrogen gas, for whatever it is, that just waits for the right ignition to set it off. And because we like what we hear, and because it, it suits our bitterness and suits our, our selfishness, we can be set off into a crowd just like that. And suddenly we're being swept up into something totally abandoning reason. And when you see these things happening in riots within our own land, as soon as there's any re, uh, removal of authority or a claimed justification to rebel against authority, and I say claimed because I don't believe there is any. I don't find anywhere in Scripture where there is ever a right of people to rebel against authority. God holds the right to hold authority accountable, whether it's in your home, in our church, in society, at work. And so we find that it's always easy to throw up a mob, particularly against authority. Always take on the man, right? Come on. I'm not talking about, well, maybe I am in the home, the man, the husband, father. Um, but I'm talking about the guy, the, the authority, whether he be the government or the boss or the corporation or, or whoever it is that uh, we, we, we think that there's honor in that. And we've been, by the way, we have 250, 40 years of ingrainment in our country that rebellion is an honorable thing. Um, and it is not. It is not godly. But how quickly and how easily it is for us to find re- the rebellious sort. Evil men who are willing to stir up mobs um, with false accusation, with unreasonable and unfounded statements. Uh, we already saw that in Philippi. Uh, not even, and the authorities don't listen carefully. 
They don't reason it out. They don't inquire of these two, at least one Roman citizen, um, but rather they just respond to quiet the mob. We're going to see this borne out in Ephesus later on, uh, again and again, how easy it is to simply stir up a mob. Why? Because in the heart of men, there is a powder keg of rebellion waiting the right spark. And we can say that we have eradicated it, but the fact is, it is a war that all of us fight. We fight it in our homes. All of your children, all of your children have it. Even the cute ones. Maybe especially the cute ones. They all have it. Just try not giving them what they want. And they will think that they have a right to rebel because you're a mean parent. Every wife has within her the capacity and the, <laughs> the fuel to rebel against her husband. We can't deny it. For denying it sets us up to allow it to be ignited by simply some wrong that we think we have perhaps truly have gotten from our, the husband. We see it in churches and we spiritualize it. But the fact is, is that it's a simple thing to run roughshod over the authority, first of God's ministers within our home, within our church, within our society, and ultimately roughshod over God himself. I've personally encountered that, where men simply got swept up and, and, well, all these people can't be wrong screaming this, and I haven't really investigated it myself. I haven't taken the time to consider it. I haven't taken the, the effort to read and to study and to understand, but I am simply going to be swept up into what everyone else is saying and condemn and attack and rebel. Yeah, the mob mentality is in us all. It just waits for the right trigger. The trigger that accommodates our own interests. And I've seen pastors being swept up in it. I see pastors today being swept up in it in regards to our nation. And there's probably no pastor around here that has spoken more directly against the some of the core principles of our nation than me, but you will never hear me call you to rebel against that. Rather, that we stand in righteousness and surrender ourselves. Submit ourselves to God's control. That He is the one who deals with nations and that we are the ones who deal with our hearts. And so the Jews didn't like what they heard, and it was an easy thing to go raise up a mob. Simply because men get excited and don't think. We've had mobs recently here in Albuquerque. 
And uh, my poor daughter was just shocked to find some of her fellow students had participated in the rioting uh, up and down Central. Did these children have a reason? Did they have a cause? Did they have an honest complaint against their society? No. You know why they're there? Because it was fun. That was their declared reason to participate in that. It was just something to do, and it was wild and fun. They didn't care about some guy being shot by police. That wasn't what they were there for. They were there because they wanted to feed an opportunity to exercise and demonstrate rebellion. So are wrong things being perpetrated? Yes. Even by people in authority? Yes. Um, How do we respond? (laughs) Not like a mob. Not with rebellion. So we are called to be a sane people in an insane world. We find the mob attacking a house of Jason. Some of the uh, other brethren were dragged before the rulers of the city. And the rulers of the city of Thessalonica thankfully had some sense of control instead of invoking any kind of injury upon these men, simply fined them, took of their material resources. But they recognized the threat and let there be no doubt that a mob is a serious thing. Um, And we find that they are going to take Paul and Silas. They're going to have them escorted away. They do it at night. They arrive in Berea and we come into a wonderful community that is in stark contrast to what we just saw. And so when we look at our society and we look within us and we see this powder keg of rebellion just simply waiting, which is, which is built on pride and it is not built on reasonableness. It is not built on, um, on truth and it is not built upon godliness. It, it is built upon pride and self-interest. James says that's where every evil thing comes from. So we have that kind of society and we see it very prevalent in our day and age and it is disturbing. And I know that we are disturbed by mobs being raised up in the Middle East and murdering Christians and others. Um, And we think we're better than that somehow, but we seem to neglect the fact that it really will only take a very small spark to get an equally violent mob started here in the United States, any community you want to pick. But we find a different community, a contrasting community. And I love the, the term being used here in the New King James in verse 11. It says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And I love that term, that, that reference. And um, we, we know literally that, that historically we've always used the word noble, but I like this fair-mindedness. And I want to share with you, this is an attitude, a spirit that we just are not finding in our society today. I have been, um, I'm going to use the word patrolling, <laughs> I patrol social media. I don't really 
I don't surf it because um, it's not enjoyable to me much. Uh, but I patrol it. And I see some engagements. And I'm one of those guys that reads all the comments. In fact, usually I'm more interested in the comments than the blog or the article. I, I read through them because I want to see the engagement. How are people engaging in discussion? And, uh, and I'm watching and I'm listening and I'm trying to see how we are seeking, we're desperately seeking to influence one another, but we are equally clinging to our positions, unwilling to relent on any one point. Now, I would challenge you to really read through some of those in the, some of the more famous blogs and stuff, and, and how often, because uh, I can't count on one hand because I don't even need a hand, to count the number of times I've actually read someone change their position in the midst of engaging people in discussion over any topic. I don't need a hand to count them because I haven't counted any. Or someone says, oh, I'm wrong. You're right. Thank you. Because that attitude, that spirit of of considering that I might not have the truth, I might be wrong, is largely absent from the psyche of our society. It is just not there. We have all been convinced that what I believe to be right is right. And we have crossed our arms and sat down smugly and said, try to prove me wrong. And most of the times their positions are so out of range of anything reasonable that you're like, where do I even start? I mean, the basic foundations of your, of your decision are wrong. You're totally disconnected with reality because they've created their own reality in their own mind because they are disregarded and discounted there is something capital T truth. I used to try to engage people. I have stopped. I just don't see the value of it because there's a spirit not of the Bereans but of the the Jews and the mob that don't want to hear it. It's reasonable. It's demonstrable. It's evidential. It's, it's, it's easily received by anyone who approaches it fair-mindedly. That is, that I am willing to not just let you have your say, I am willing to actually consider that you might be wrong and I might... I'm sorry, you might be right and I might be wrong. <laughs> the other one is probably the... The main, but that's not fair-mindedness. I will hear you out with an attitude not to just hear your points so I can defend mine against yours, but so I might truly consider that maybe I've gotten it wrong. And maybe I just have really bad friends. I don't know. But I don't see it. I don't find that attitude. It is so rare, I have begun to think that it no longer exists. And I examine my own heart and say, am I that spirited? Am I that way that if it's not how I understand it, that therefore I can't learn anything? You, you, if you don't agree with me, you don't, I don't need to hear you. Um, but rather, we need to engage in the discussion and be fair-minded. 
and all the gospel really needs is fair-mindedness. Is an honest hearing. Not just a hearing that says, oh, I'm going to let you seek your peace because we're tolerant around here. Not just a hearing that says, okay, let me hear your points so I can tear them apart. No, but an honest hearing that considers this might be truth I haven't considered before. And I might even be wrong. And that's how the Bereans approached Paul. Now, does that mean they turned their brains off? Does that mean that they were stupid? That they didn't have the capacity to engage him? No, no, no. Quite the opposite. They were filled with the capacity. Look at it with me here in verse um, 11. I stopped at fair-mindedness. Let's read the last half of the verse. In that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They didn't just, they weren't a gullible group. They just, well, okay, we'll just shove it down our throats. We're fine with that. Oh no, we're not, we're not asking the world to turn off their brain when we approach them with the gospel. In fact, we desperately need them to engage their mind. Uh, unlike they maybe they've ever done before in their history. Because I'm certain that the educational community isn't doing it. There would be evidence of it in our society, if our children's brains were being turned on at at school. Oh no. That's not going on. They have no critical skills at all coming out. We have college professors, the friends of ours, and they're like, oh, this is, we have people coming to school and you know what? You can't teach them because they can't even think. And these are some of the best schools around that are have pretty high standards. This isn't CNN we're talking about um, where you take the acuplacer. These people, you know, high echelon schools, kids with 4.0s that don't have critical thinking skills. Maybe that's why the gospel is being run roughshod over in our society so much. No, we don't want people to turn their brains off. That's what the evil one wants. He wants a mob. He wants the unreasonable, prideful Jew who wants to disregard the demonstrable, wants to disregard the evidence, who wants to disregard all of that out of their own interests. No, we want to engage their minds. We want them to search. We want them to consider. We want them to engage. We want them to dig. (laughs) Take your Bible and dig. And every preacher worth his weight is going to not want to have a church uneducated in the Bible. Whenever you come across religious groups who basically want to keep you blind to what's in the Word without their guidance, um, they got something they're hiding. The truth of the Gospel endures and, in fact, blossoms under such thoughtful consideration. So no, we are not irrational. 
You've heard me say it before. My term is we are super rational. We take it right out of the self-interest of men's reasoning and come into the interest of God's reasoning. And that touches the conscience of men that they have tried to squelch through their pseudo-reasoning. So the Bereans were noble, is the old world term. They were fair-minded. And it wasn't that they were gullible. They said, we will investigate this. Because if what you're saying is true, we're been messed up. We're wrong. And we need to conform to that truth. And they searched. They studied. They examined. They considered. They heard. They thought. They engaged themselves fully in this endeavor. And at the conclusion of the matter, and by the way, that's all we ask. Verse 12, therefore, is the first word. <laughs> Which means, because of that spirit, because of that attitude of fair-mindedness, because of that willingness to do the hard work of careful thought, instead of the fallacious fantasies of the mob, of carefully thinking through, that we come to Scripture, therefore, because of that attitude, that spirit, because of their study, many, remember before it was some, that's like it was some, believed. But now, in this kind of environment, many of the Jews believed. In addition to now, it says, not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. They were still reached. But what was the difference between the two groups? One is raising up a mob. With, they're companioning themselves with evil men who are just have nothing better to do than to go out and, and be violent and destructive. And over here we have some fair-minded individuals who are going to do the work of study and engagement and their conclusion is, this is true. And since it's true, we're going to follow it. And I will contend with you that the people of Berea made this their attitude, not only of their synagogue, but of their church. And because they're willing to search things out and not be reactive to whatever guy stands up there and blurts something out, that's how mobs start. It's a reaction to a blurt. I don't know if you can use blurt as a noun or not, but I just did. That's a mob reacting to a blurt. No, these people as a church, I am convinced because there is no book called To the Bereans. This is a church that could lead itself because they were dependent upon the Holy Spirit. They could study the Word and they could discover its truth, and they were of the Spirit to apply it to their lives. Does that mean that they had no powder keg of rebellion in them? No, they are just like everyone else. But they, what they were good at is identifying a spark when it came along and putting it out. I'm no different. I know that there is rebellion in me. I know that it's there. 
I have all the chemical makeup or whatever you want to say. I have it there. And I can see some sparks that could ignite it. Because of God's Word and His Spirit, um, I have made it my objective to put them out before they ignite anything. To identify when people are trying to raise up rebellion instead of godliness. And the two can never mix There are no godly rebels ever. No matter how hideous the authority you're rebelling against is, there is no godly rebellion. Ultimately, these people were not rebelling against Paul. They are rebelling against God. They really didn't want to humble themselves because that's the core of the gospel. So you have to humble yourself to God, to Jesus Christ, to His one singular way, to all the good things God offers. I'm not asking you to become gullible and to turn your brain off to receive that message this morning. I am desperately begging you Turn your brain on and consider your ways and to consider that if there is a God, He must be righteous and He must be just and He must penalize sin. Everything in our conscience tells us that this is so and that nothing can take away sin, no good act can undo an evil one. And therefore we hold the bag of responsibility for every sin. So our salvation is impossible and so we turn to the one who can do impossible things. (laughs) And through his son did the most wonderful act in the history of man. He was raised from the dead that we might have our sins forgiven. And it's death of death destroyed. This is not an unreasonable offer, the gospel. But it is a super reasonable one. It is of God's. And it does require us to humble ourselves and to admit that I am wrong and God is right. To admit that I'm the sinner and he is the Holy One. To admit that I am helpless and he is all-powerful. And if that offends you, then you will respond this morning by rebellion. It's that simple. Perhaps this is your first engagement with it on this level and you want to consider it some more. I challenge you, please do, but make sure you do it with your Bible in hand. If you don't have one, I'll give you one.
But some of you are ready to be persuaded. And I invite you to receive the Word of God with all readiness. That readiness isn't just mental agreement. It is submission of life to that truth. I invite you to seek me out after the service if that is your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, we um, thank you for this honest disclosure. What we see really around us and sometimes want to turn a blind eye to the fact that it is within us. And Lord, we pray that you might guard us from rebellion and from trusting our own thoughts and beliefs and we have not even considered your truth let alone understood them and so Lord forgive us for not searching things out in your word but rather reacting to the triggers that are around us in our society whether they be in our own heart and mind, whether it be in the relationships around us or simply by the stranger blurting out something that kind of sounds good but is really a lie. Lord, give us wisdom. To keep those sparks of rebellion from igniting us against the authorities in our homes the authority in our church, the authorities in our society, at our workplace, at our school. That we might give honor where it is due, not because they have earned it, but because it has been assigned to them by you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.